This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. I'm your host, Stuart in LA, and I'm here to talk to you about Bond. James Bond. It's 007's 50th anniversary in film, and we're celebrating it big time. Over at our sister podcast, nowplayingpodcast.com, Arnie, Brock, and myself are reviewing all 25 movies that have featured the iconic British super spy. And I thought Books and Nachos would be an excellent opportunity to explore his literary origins. I've never read any of these works before, and Brock and I are divvying up the original Ian Fleming books, nine short stories, 12 full novels, and tracing the origin of the character before he became a movie icon. Starting with Casino Royale. It was written in 1952. It was published in 1953. That's coming nine years before the first Bond movie, Dr. No. And, as you can tell, they didn't film the movies in the same order that the books were written. And consequently, I'm probably not going to be able to comment a lot on the adaptations and how close the books are to the movies. We're watching the movies at a different point than I'm reading and reviewing these novels. That's okay, though, because I think we really do want to stay focused on the character that Ian Fleming conceived and wrote. And that's who I'm interested in getting to know, not so much what the movies are going to do. We'll cover the movies over at Now Playing. Books and Nachos are for the literary works. Now, I don't know much about Ian Fleming, but I dare say, looking at his biography, it does seem to have a large bit of autobiographical origins to James Bond. He was someone that who spent most of his adult life in the British Navy, surrounded by secret service men, working on top secret missions. It seems foundational the experiences he had in his military career were what bring us James Bond. I think it's a real surprise for Bond movie fans like myself to see this character here. I mean, there are superficial similarities. He wears suits and goes to casinos and drinks martinis and even introduces himself by saying Bond, James Bond, with that pregnant pause in the middle. All of that stuff was done here in this novel, but this is a far more prickly character. He's hard to like, this James Bond. He's a fussy man. Things have to be just so. I mean, take a look at how he orders a drink. In the movie, it's Shaken, not stirred. That's it. You know, very masculine. Got it. Short order. Here, it's like, okay, it has to be served in a champagne glass, not a martini glass. And it's got to have one-third of vodka that doesn't come from a potato and one-third gin. And I have this very particular brand of vermouth that you have to use at this temperature. I mean, really, it's high maintenance. And maybe that's a part of the British character, the sense of propriety, things being just so. But he's also just kind of an ass. I can't put it any more bluntly than that. And never more so than when he's talking about women. Now, I know that any version of James Bond has a certain sort of playful chauvinism to him, and that he has never been known as a progressive champion of the fairer sex. But let me read you this passage. He's just been assigned another fellow agent, female Vesper Lind. And this is his response. 
And then there was this pest of a girl. He sighed. Women were for recreation. On a job, they got in the way and fogged things up with sex and hurt feelings and all the emotional baggage they carried around. One had to look out for them and take care of them. Bitch, said Bond. In the movies... I thought it was all about bagging babes. The spy adventure was just a pretense to get some hot chick into the sack. But here, he really doesn't want them around. I mean, a distraction. I feel like this is a very different, much pricklier man. And maybe you can get away with these kinds of thoughts if you have the good looks of Sean Connery. But Vesper describes him as looking like Hoagie Carmichael. I had to look him up. I didn't know who that was, but he's a songwriter and big band leader. And he's kind of a fresh-faced, bland, unassuming, you know, he's no Connery. I'll put it that way. And although Vesper describes him as cold and ruthless, a cold, ruthless band leader does not make me think about the character that I gravitated towards in the movies. So Bond movie fans, you are going to be taken aback by this conception. I do think it's going to take you a while to appreciate where Fleming is coming to with this character. The biggest selling point, really, for this effete snob is the fact that the universe has defined him as lucky. He's excellent at cards. He is a gambler, and he wins. And if the games of chance have assigned him the label of winner, I guess we should, too. We are to be impressed with that he has the machismo and the daring to dive into games where really no one has control and somehow exert some kind of influence that has him coming out on top. I don't know if Fleming meant it to be so, but it's almost a parody of English privilege and aristocracy. You know, at this point in time, 1952, the British Empire had collapsed. World War II was the death knell to a whole crumbling empire, and England really must have been shaken by how radically the entire world had been remapped and how they had been relegated to being supporting players, that they were no longer in charge. And so, in historical context, it's easier to appreciate and be amused at Bond's arrogance and inflated sense of self-importance. And it's an attitude that's going to serve him well here as he plays cards against the Soviet spy Le Chiffre. Bond's already gambled on many missions for Her Majesty's. This latest one, well, it's not what you think. I think another shock for Bond movie fans is that the fate of the world is not at stake here. The stakes are much more modest. Le Chiffre is a Russian spy that's been working in England and France and on the side has taken Soviet money and put it into businesses for his own game. Houses of ill repute. Brothels. And those have been busted and shut down. He's lost money. And his Soviet bosses are going to find out and kill him unless he can make that money up very quickly. He's come to Casino Royale to double his 25 million francs. And the English are positioning Bond to play against him to make sure he doesn't make that money. England wants to see this spy go down. And it's more satisfying if Russia has to kill him than they kill him. What would you rather do? Put a bullet in your enemy or watch your enemy have to put a bullet into one of their own? If Bond loses, nobody dies. What's at stake really for England is that they don't want to have to rely too much on the Americans. There are CIA men that are also floating around Casino Royale. Felix Leiter being 
the one that Bond befriends, and they don't want the Americans to step in and be the heroes again. It's kind of like World War II all over again, and you just see that it's chafing the English to think of Americans as having to be their rescuers. And I think Casino Royale, the novel, is really, in some ways, a sequel to the Yalta Conference. If you remember, at the end of World War II, Stalin, Churchill, Truman, all met in Yalta to divide up Europe and say how the world was going to be run from that point. And here you see it done, again, almost in parody, on a casino showroom floor. The Russian being Le Chiffre, the British being Bond, the Americans being Felix. And everything and nothing is at stake here. It's really more about fragile egos representing world powers and this petty fight. So, Bond fans, you're not going to get the typical sexcapades and cool gadgets, and there's only one car chase. I mean, it really isn't the kind of adventure you're accustomed to. It's a weird way of thinking about the politics of the Cold War. And all the players have assets and deficits. Now, there's only 181 pages in Casino Royale. It reads pretty quickly, but it is a difficult thing to start off because it's an information dump at first. There's a lot of information that's just going to be given to you as data, as if, let's say, M just called you into his office and handed you a file and wanted you to read up so that you would be prepared. That's kind of how the first 30, 40 pages kind of goes before things really get good and the action takes place. But I'm grateful for it because I don't play cards. And one of the things Fleming teaches you is how to play Baccarat. That's how Bond is going to challenge Le Chiffre in this game of Baccarat. Well, you need to know the rules in order to be invested in the playing. And it's kind of like Blackjack. It's instead of going to 21, you go to 9. And once I was appreciative of knowing how it flowed, it really gets you caught up in the story. And Fleming keeps going. I mean, he just keeps turning up the tension. There's also these bombers that are trying to assassinate Bond when he leaves the showroom floor. There are spies above his hotel room. There's even a man that walks up while everyone's crowded around the table and puts a gun at the base of his spine and says, when I fire this, they're going to just think that you collapsed and I'm going to be away before they realize that you're dead. But if you don't lose this hand, I'm going to pull the trigger. It's good stuff. And I was really, once I got past that first 30 pages, just couldn't turn the pages fast enough. And let's face it, no matter how you want to write James Bond, one thing is consistent. He's no chump. He's no loser. He's not going to throw this hand. He is not going to come away losing all the money. Yes, the CIA does have to bail him out the first time, but at the end of the day, he puts Le Chiffre down for 80 million francs, and Le Chiffre is in a deeper hole than he even was beforehand, and has no other choice but to kidnap Bond and try to force him to give his winnings up. Bond has tucked away his winnings behind the door knocker of his hotel room. The spies upstairs have not been able to turn it up, so they try a different approach. They kidnap Vesper Lind. Bond pursues in a car. He gets into an accident. He is taken prisoner, and Le Chiffre begins to beat on him in a manner identical to the brutal way that Daniel Craig takes it in the 2006 Casino Royale movie. That's the one thing you're going to remember if you've ever seen that movie, you'll never forget. It's just as brutal here on the page. I was surprised that Fleming is as tough with him as he is. But it's also a surprise that Le Chiffre is not killed by Bond. He is only stopped because a fellow Soviet Smirsch agent 
busts into the room and shoots Le Chiffre dead. He thinks about killing Bond as well, but he doesn't have orders to do so, and so instead he marks Bond. He takes his hand and carves the word spy on the top of his hand so that he can never work undercover again. He's branded and ruined with Her Majesty. Bond's okay with this. I didn't know that Fleming could be so cynical, but Bond is ready to walk away. He has seen a change in the world. He was already cynical at the start of this, and this adventure really makes him feel like I can leave it behind. He's fallen in love with Vesper Lind. He could go off with her and have a happy life, and he no longer buys into the politics that he's been upon it. You know, he really has a moral ambiguity towards all the players. In World War II, there were good guys, there were bad guys. But in the Cold War, it's just not so clear. And this surprised me. I was really surprised at the way that Fleming is able to give Bond the clarity to see that the distinctions between good guy and bad guy no longer make sense. I think of Bond's overwhelming desire to have control over his life. He cannot have control playing these post World War II spy games. The rules no longer apply. I was stunned, really. I was stunned that Fleming gave the character such a cynical outlook. His designation, 007, the two zeros stand for kills. He's assassinated two people in the line of duty. There was a Japanese spy who was decoding British documents. He shot him through a window at Rockefeller Center in New York. There was also a Norwegian who was turning over agents' identities to Germans. He had to kill him. Normally, you might think that that's totally virtuous, but Bond doesn't think so. He thinks that those guys were probably just like him, doing their job, and they just met the other end of a gun barrel. So he's walking away. And I'm stunned, because this is the first James Bond book, right? Not the last. How is this going to go forward if he's turning in his license to kill? Well, it's because... Vesper Lind turns out to be a double agent. She is working in cahoots with the Russians. Not really because she wants to, but because her real lover was taken prisoner by them. And if she doesn't do as they say, they'll kill him. So she's been tailing Bond and kind of doing what they were saying. And I think she's the reason why Le Chiffre really ends up getting busted. But she loves Bond. It's not an act. I mean, she really could be happy running away with him, as he plans, wanting to get married, but she just doesn't see how she can do that. Ultimately, Russia will catch up with her, and Bond's life will be in danger. And then, of course, the man she loves is still in captivity. She's caught between a rock and a hard place and chooses to down a whole bottle of pills and kills herself, confessing all in a suicide note. And what we're left with is a broken-hearted Bond, who re-enlists with Her Majesty's Secret Service, not out of a sense of duty, not out of renewed patriotism, out of vengeance. You know, he didn't want to kill Le Chiffre because Le Chiffre was a Soviet. He wanted to kill Le Chiffre because he hurt him. And now he wants to kill more Soviets because they hurt him. They hurt Vespa. They forced Vespa to kill herself. Now they must pay. And so this is a tragic love story. The motivator here is really out of tragic love. I was shocked. I had no idea that this was going to be our initial Bond adventure. I didn't imagine that Fleming would create a character that was so prickly and dark and cynical. And all the things I was bumping up against at the start of this story and didn't like actually make him seem so relatable and and sad and make me root for him here at the end. 
So it's great that we're starting out with both a fresh vision, one that I don't feel is representative of the Connery or Moore years, a very different Bond, and a very strong recommend. I want to know where this series goes, and I'm very excited to keep reading. Now, we've got four more months of Bond adventures. Next week, James Bond is going to return in Live and Let Die. Here at Books and Nachos, we'll be covering the second book, Live and Let Die, now, of course, over at Now Playing, we're doing Dr. No and the two films that follow that. But just thinking about this character here, I can't wait to see where Fleming's Bond is going to go next. We'll forget our answers next week. I hope you keep reading. I hope you join me then. James Bond returns in Live and Let Die. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.